test? No? Yes, there it is. All right. Uh, Vince has gone off to get me a little bit of scotch tape, otherwise this is going to be flopping all over my face like a wet fish, and that's going to be distracting both to you and me. But entertaining, but entertaining, absolutely. Jeez. Um, all right. Uh, good evening, everybody. Thank you for being here. If you're watching at home, thank you for watching. We are going to be in First Thessalonians tonight, and we're going to get through verses 3 through 5. If you remember, this is the church that is functional and doing very, very well. And it's one of the first churches that Paul established, and it's also, I can't see, where is it? There it is. It's also um, one of his darlings. Now, we're going to start in verse 2 tonight, but before we get there, I want to share with you something that was texted to me um, this morning by a Miss Kimberly Houndshell. You guys know who Kimmy is? Some of you do, yeah? Okay, cool. Well, she had an experience last night that um, y'all should know about. She said, I just got out of the 99 cent store about an hour ago, and I always meet people there to talk to them about Jesus. I fed a lady and a man tonight, and I talked to them about Jesus, and they just accepted Jesus into their hearts. <laughs> All right. A lot of times many say they already know God and I just end up feeding them and praying with them. But this lady and guy told me they weren't sure. I had her and the guy pray with me to accept Christ. It was so awesome when that happens. I sat there for about an hour and just talked to them. Her name was Kim, just like me, and his name was Kunzin. And I told them I was going to bring back some Bibles to them. They're usually there most of the time, and I usually have Bibles, but I didn't have my new car. I transferred them into that stuck at Patty's and Lou's. Please, if you would, keep them in prayer. Thanks a lot, Pastor D. Isn't that awesome? That's a good thing. In a time when there is so much bad news on the TV and in all the social media, it's good to see that God isn't disturbed and that he's still on the move. Tonight, we're going to see Paul giving thanks for the Thessalonian Christians. And we are going to learn that um, there are three specific things that he's going to be giving them thanks for. There, there. Oh, where is it? their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, and knowing of their election by God. We're gonna get into all of that tonight. So Father, as we come now to your holy word, we know that it 
does not return to you void. And, and that's just a way of you saying, Lord God, that you have a purpose for it and that it will accomplish the purpose. As we read it, as we study it, as we take it to heart, you will fulfill the purpose for which you have spoken this word through your Holy Spirit and through the pen of Paul. So I ask that you open our understanding and help us to be attentive to what your spirit will say. So if you will, Father, just manifest your spirit now through the teaching of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in verse 2, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Now we covered that a little bit last week. Uh, first of all, when he says we, he's talking about Silas and he's talking about Timothy. So they had just a little prayer meeting going on there. And it says that they were making mention of you in our prayers making mention and remember we talked about that that prayers for others don't need to be lengthy drawn out theological treaties they can actually just be short prayers that pray the word of god over a situation and and that is that suffices it sometimes we do want to pray longer we do want to pray more in depth we do want to pour out our heart a little bit more but it's good to know that he also listens to the mentions the mentions, the, uh, the prayers that are, are short. We might call them arrows to heaven, if you will. Now he says, we give thanks to God always for you all. Um, Paul was totally into giving thanks for the people that he worked with and for the churches that he was a part of. In Romans 1.8, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. First Corinthians 1, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 1.16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Colossians 1.3, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then in 2 Thessalonians, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, as is right. 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. And in Philemon chapter 1, verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. I suppose you could think that, well, that's just the way Paul talks, right? That is just sort of a uh, way that we might talk with one another. How are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Just sort of surface conversation. But if you know Paul, there's nothing surface with him. He, he doesn't mess around with trivialities. When he says something, there is power and there's meaning behind it. Um, an, an ancient... Well, I guess it is ancient, 300 AD, yeah, that's, that's a long time ago, right? That's ancient to us, just yesterday for me, but Chrysostom, in his commentary on this, he said, this is 300 AD, he says, Paul thanks God for them as though God himself had accomplished everything. You see, 
like John the Apostle, he says, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in the truth. That you are established in the faith. That you have received Jesus Christ and it is bearing fruit in your life. That's what I want as a pastor. That's what I've always wanted even as a youth pastor. And I go back today and I talk to the kids that I had about 40 years ago, those poor kids. I want to know that God has accomplished a work in them. Turn to Philippians chapter 1, please, and look at verse 3. Philippians 1, starting at verse 3. Because this is a spiritual principle for everyone and anyone who would seek to minister to others. Philippians 1.3, Paul says, every time I think of you, every time I'm thinking of you, Philippians, I give thanks to my God. Does that sound familiar? Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. Now notice verse 6. And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Who began the work? God began the work. Paul's just the messenger. But boy, when it takes and you see the fruit of that come to fruition, wow, what a joy. What a pleasant and wonderful thing because that's what you want to see in ministry. That's what you want to see. Now, as well, the challenges, Paul saw things to be thankful for in the members of the church. We see in our day a great need for revival. You guys remember the Jesus movement, which is probably the last great revival that we have seen. And we would love to see another one, right? Well, I believe another great awakening would be a great thing for our society and for our culture right now. But before we get all doom and gloom and walk around like spiritual Eeyores, okay, it would be good for us to see what God is doing and rejoice in it. I mean, just think of what happened um, a couple nights ago with Kim, meeting with that couple and leading them to Christ. That could be any one of us. And what a joy it is to do something like that. My friend John Miller, a pastor at um, Revival Fellowship in Menifee, California, they are locked down just like we are, and maybe even more so because uh, the governor there has prohibited people from going to church. But that hasn't stopped their online presence. Now, he passes a church of around two to 3,000 people. Okay, it's a little bit bigger than us, just a little, okay? And uh, on Easter Sunday, when all of us were in quarantine, they had an online social media presence of 10,000 people and 400 
dedicated their lives to Christ during that service. And ever since then, every Sunday, he gives an altar call online, and every Sunday, 40, 50 people come to Christ. I, didn't, I was hoping that um, El Fadi would, would address this, but you know that there's even a revival going on in Iran where hundreds and hundreds are coming to Christ, even in the midst of the persecution that they face. So it blows your mind. It will warm your heart. It will cause you to applaud the Father for his faithfulness and goodness for what he has done for us personally and what he's doing for us corporately. It should just be blowing us away, and we should be people with great gratitude. Amen? All right. Now, let's look at verse 3, and we see why Paul gave thanks to God for the Thessalonian Christians. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. The things that Paul is pointing out here are signs of maturity. And that's the, that's the thing that pastors and ministers want to see. The Christians that you are ministering to, to mature, to grow up. And these are signs of maturity. As the Christian matures in the faith, that works of faith, those labors of love, and the patient of hope are natural byproducts. Natural byproducts of maturing. Okay? Um, I don't know the day that you gentlemen discovered that deodorant was something that you actually needed to use. Okay? But that need for the deodorant was a natural byproduct of your body maturing. These things, these things, the work of faith, the labor of love, the patient of hope, are those same type of natural byproducts. They just smell a lot better, right? Paul is grateful to God for the Thessalonians because there was an undeniable work of the Holy Spirit and a marvelous change in their lives. And the evidence of this was the manifestation of the, what we call the three great Christian virtues. If you're taking notes, you might, you might want to write this one down. The three great Christian virtues, faith, love, and hope. You probably remember them in a different order, don't you? From 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Um, these things will last forever, faith, hope. And love. And here, Paul puts them in the order of faith, love, and hope. Not, it's not, uh, it's not meaningful. In other words, it, it doesn't matter. Paul's stress is not on the virtues alone, but rather upon what they produce. Okay, for instance, faith. Do you see what it produces in your Bible? Faith that produces works. That's a natural byproduct of true, mature faith. The Bible gives lots of examples of what good works look like. Um, keeping the commandments, uh, giving to the poor, 
um, doing it secretly without notoriety, uh, giving a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus. Those are good works. Um, Jesus said, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And of course, the question came up, well, when did we ever do that? Because when you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Those are all good works. In the book of Acts, there was at Joppa um, a disciple named Tabitha. Uh, and you guys might know her as Dorcas. Uh, this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds. And all the widows stood, stood by weeping, showing all the tunics and garments which she had made to give to the poor. Those are good works. Now, good works are not limited to those few verses, guys. Everything that you do that is good is a good work. Everything that you do that is good is a good work. And good works are natural byproducts of coming to faith in Christ. You should live out your faith as you abide in Christ. Remember last week we talked about staying in the tub, right? Abiding in that place, all right? It's just what you do. Good works. Now, you may need to be reminded from time to time, but you never, ever should be cajoled into having to do a good work. In other words, if I start getting up here and start snapping the whip and beating the sheep because I don't think you're doing enough good works, that's a bad pastor. We don't do that. I'm to lead, not to drive the sheep. It should come natural for you, and for some, for most, it does, but there are times when you decide to be a stubborn little sheep and you're just gonna sit down and you're not gonna do anything. Well, that's between you and the Lord. You should never be cajoled to do good works, but because you love him, because you are passionately enamored with him, it should be just a natural thing that comes out of your life. Ephesians 2.10, why don't you turn there and look at this verse? I'm sure you're familiar with it. Ephesians 2.10. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's handiwork. Now, a lot of you know what that word handiwork means. It is a artistic term, poema, from where we get our word poem or poetry. So in one way, you could, we are God's work of art, okay? Some of you are abstract art. Some of you are cubist art, okay? And some of you are just landscapes. But you are God's handiwork, but notice, created in Christ to do good works. That's the work, the poetry that he is making out of your life so that you will do good works. And notice that God has prepared in advance for you to do these things. He's got works for you to do. He has prepared them for you. If you wanna know what it is he wants to do, abide in Christ, 
spend time with him, spend time be ministering praise and worship to him, and he will reveal to you what it is he wants you to do. We are God's masterpiece, and he's created us as new creatures in Christ so that we can do the good things that he's planned for us. Uh, one commentator said, works play no part at all in the securing of salvation. But afterwards, Christians will prove their faith by their works. Here Paul shows himself at one with James. What does James say? Do you guys remember? You say you have faith, but you don't have works. I, have, I will show you my faith by my works. It isn't the fact that my works gets me saved. It's that because I have my faith, I do good works. Natural byproduct. All right. Secondly, their love produced labor. Notice what he says. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love. Your labor of love. Okay. Now, there are two different ancient Greek words for the, for the word work. There is ergon, E-R-G-O-N, and kopos, K-O-P-O-S. Ergon is the word work translated um, good works, okay? Your, your faith produces works. And that means um, a good deed that may be pleasant and stimulating um, and enjoyable. It doesn't wear you out. Um, have you ever had the opportunity to perhaps give away a jacket or stop on the side of the road and help someone change their tire? And you do this quick good deed, and when you're done, you feel pretty good about yourself. And there's no problem with that. That's good, guys. That's good. That's not pride. It's not pride. It is simply that's what happens when you are a Christian. You just do something, and you don't want anything in return for it. But then there's another word for work, and it is kopos, and it is translated labor, okay? The labor of love. That implies toil, that is strenuous and sweat producing, okay? Turn to Hebrews 6.10. Hebrews 6.10. It would be nice if everything that we did for the Lord was real short and always enjoyable. I think most of it is. But there are times and there are seasons in our life when serving the Lord um, implies toil that is strenuous and sweat producing. Look at Hebrews 6.10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and your kopos of love, your labor of love your strenuous and sweat-producing labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Ministering to saints can be strenuous and laborious. It can be a labor because, number one, it's like housework. It's never done, okay? It goes on and on and on. Now, 
some <laughs> some people avoid situations in church and serving in areas because of that very fact. Like if I volunteer in the nursery, it's like a black hole. It'll suck me in and I'll never go out again, right? Like the lady that came out and was greeted by an usher and she said, he says, hi, how are you? Um, I, are you new to the church? <laughs> she goes, no, I'm the pastor's wife. I've just been in the nursery for the last 10 years. <laughs> you guys remember uh, the Hollies back in 1916? The, the group, the band, the Hollies? Some of you don't know, right? You don't know the Hollies. You know David Crosby, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young? Yeah, all right, whatever. <laughs> remember the song that they wrote in 69? The road is long with many a winding turn. That leads us to who knows where, who knows where. But I'm strong, strong enough to carry him because he ain't heavy, he's my brother. Remember that song, wasn't that cool? Do you know the story behind that song? Do you know the story? Back in 1918, 1918, a boy named Howard Loomis was abandoned by his mother at Father Flanagan's home for boys. And it had just opened, it only had been open for a year. Howard had polio and wore heavy leg braces. And walking was extremely difficult for him, especially when he had to go up or down stairs. Soon, several of the home's older boys were carrying Howard up and down the stairs. And one day, Father Flanagan asked Reuben Granger, one of the older boys, if it was hard carrying Howard up and down those stairs. And Reuben said, he ain't heavy, Father. He's my brother. What kind of love produces that kind of labor? Agape. Selfless affection. The love that loves for love's sake. Unconditional and ask for nothing in return. That's what Paul is talking about. when He says, I remember your labors of love. Okay? Thirdly, if you go back, or I guess you guys are still in Thessalonians, yeah? Yeah, we'll go back to 1 Thessalonians. Thirdly, their hope produced what? Patience. Patience, which is long-suffering endurance needed to survive hard times and to triumph through them. The word in the Greek is hupomone. Sounds like a 60s dance, right? Come on, everybody, let's do the hupomone. It means to bear up under. I mean, think of a, a, a donkey carrying wood on its back and it just keep piling it on and on and on and that poor little donkey's back is bowed like that and the legs are just sort of quivering under the weight, but it doesn't fall. That's hupomone, okay? Hupomone refers to that quality of character which does not allow one to surrender to circumstances or to succumb under trial. It's a bearing up under patiently, enduring 
things or circumstances. Hupomone is the energizer bunny of hope, all right? You've seen the commercials. It just keeps on going and keeps on going. Back in the 60s, there were commercials for the Timex watch. Do you guys remember those, right? And the, and the quote was, it takes a licking and it keeps on ticking, right? That is hupomone. Now, what produces Hupamone, okay? It just doesn't come naturally. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed? You mean when you get into a situation, you just don't all of a sudden just feel real patient about it. Hupamone is developed. It is developed. And what produces that? Hope. Hope. What is hope? A certain expectation of coming good. I can endure this because there's something good that's coming down the road and it's not far off. And what was the coming good they were sure was coming? The return of Christ. You got it, Nita. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, recalling unceasingly before our God and Father your work, energized by faith and service motivated by love, and unwavering hope in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's the rendering in the Amplified Version. Christ is coming. I can take this. I can deal with this. And then there's a fourth thing, okay? Verse 4, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. We have had, we have seen the faith that produces works, love that, labor that's produced by love, and we have seen this unwavering hope in the return of Christ, which helps us to be patient. Knowing, verse 4, beloved brethren, your election by God. Giving thanks for the Thessalonians because of their election by God. And again, the Amplified Version renders verse 4, O brethren, beloved by God, we recognize and know that he has selected or chosen you. Paul was saying, I'm giving thanks to God for you because I see evidence that you're saved, that you've been elected by God. You're the real deal, Lucille. No one comes to Christ unless the Father draws him. Is that scriptural? Some of you could shake your head yes. That would really help me right now. All right. No one comes to Christ unless the Father draws him, chooses him, and there's evidence for that, and we recognize it. What Paul is seeing is the evidence of election, saving faith. Their faith produced works. Their love produced labors. And their hope in his return produced patience. You can understand this church, even though it is a good church and it's a healthy church, it's under some severe persecution. Read through the book of Acts and find out whenever Paul established a church someplace, what was on the heels of its founding. 
always persecution of one sort or another. And nobody understands Christianity at this time. No one has an idea of what this religion is. They think it's just a sect of Judaism, a weird sect as, as far as that. They get the idea that these guys are into incestuous relationships because they kiss brothers and sisters and that they're into cannibalism because they eat the body and the blood of, body and blood of Christ. That's the mentality of the world toward the church. Not a whole lot different than today, guys. And they were getting messed with. They didn't have a constitution to hide behind. They were being messed with. So their faith-producing works, their love-producing labor, and their hope in his return producing patience. Paul reminds them that they are elected, chosen of God. Notice he calls them beloved, right? You guys remember J. Vernon McGee? May God bless you, my dearly beloved. He chose them. The two go together. When we love someone, we naturally choose them, don't we? William Barclay, in his commentary, said, the phrase beloved by God was a phrase which the Jews applied only to support supremely great men like Moses and Solomon and to the nation of Israel itself. Now the greatest privilege of the greatest men of God's chosen people has been extended to the humblest of the Gentiles. That's so sweet. At the cross, the ground is what? Level. Absolutely. So Paul's giving thanks for their certain election. Now, this is where a lot of fights start between denominations. The doctrine of election. If God chose me, then I had no say in it, right? And if God chose me, then that means he must not have chosen others because not everybody believes, right? And then it goes back and forth, and pretty soon you're throwing hymnals at one another. The doctrine of election, let's just say this, it's a mystery. First mystery is why God even chose us, right? Spurgeon said, you know, I never, I'm glad he chose me because I never would have chosen him. And I'm glad he chose me before the foundation of the world. Because if he would have waited afterwards, he wouldn't have chose me. Mm -hmm. Ephesians 1.4 if you like. Paul says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. What we're looking at is when we were chosen. Before the foundation of the world. Before creation. Before the Big Bang. Before anything existed. He chose us. How do you do that? Well, he's God. Okay, not hard if you're God. Now, we had a responsibility, though, to choose him as well. Because John 1.12 says, For, But as many as received him, there you go, that's your responsibility. If you receive him, you're choosing him, right? 
to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. The mystery of God's election and man's decision will never be fully explained on this side of heaven. So put your hymnal back in its holster. All right? Just keep in mind, guys, that the Bible teaches both. They asked Spurgeon, how do you reconcile these two truths? And he said, I never try to reconcile friends. Somehow they work together to bring the Christian to maturity. David Guzik said, these twin truths of election and decision are not contradictory. They are complementary. Okay. As far as God the Father is concerned, we were saved when he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Isn't that what we just read? Okay. As far as the Spirit is concerned, we were saved when we responded to his call and received Christ. All right? And as far as the Son is concerned, we were saved when he died for us on the cross. Beyond that, just leave me alone, because I'm happy, <laughs> okay? I don't want to have to explain it anymore, because I don't understand it any further than that. All right, verse 5, 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Are you guys okay? All right. In verse 5, we see that the gospel caused changes in the Thessalonian Christians. In verse 5, he says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. First of all, are you guys, are you sure you understand what the gospel is? Because we got a lot of things that are called the gospel. We got gospel music, we got gospel truth, we got gospel preaching. We got gospel churches, gospel bluegrass, and if you go to Etsy, you can buy gospel clothing. All right. What what is the gospel? First Corinthians fifteen. Turn there real quick. So if you ever wonder what it is you really need to share as far as the gospel is concerned, this is it. It's not a social gospel. It is not a gospel church. It is truth. 1 Corinthians 15.1 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which you stand. All right. Now, and by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That's a whole other sermon right there, but you see where he's getting to. He's getting ready now to explain to you what the gospel is. All right. Look at verse 3. I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins just as the scriptures, that's the Old Testament, predicted. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Old Testament scriptures predicted. Okay? 
Now, the other half of this coin, or the other side of this coin, is found in Romans 10. Romans 10, 9. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Okay? What's the gospel? Jesus died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. And if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, in other words, confessing with your mouth means I put you on the throne of my life. I receive you and I turn my life over to you and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, then I will be saved. That's it. It's really simple, isn't it? It's really simple. Now he says, our gospel did not come to you in word only. We're back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. That word that word, power is the word dunamis in the Greek. Uh, in Bullinger's lexicon, it just means simply the ability to accomplish anything. Our gospel did not come to you in word only. In other words, it just wasn't me just preaching to you from 1 Corinthians 15. But also in power, with the ability to accomplish anything. Um, an early commentator said the reception of the gospel by the Thessalonians in power may mean that Paul's preaching was accompanied by miraculous signs. But it also may mean that it just strengthened the Thessalonians for much endurance in suffering. Okay? That's, that's power, guys. That's power. I was talking to a young lady last night who's going into um, a program to help overcome addictions and such. And if you know anything about that world, you know how hard it's going to be, especially at the very beginning. Everything in every pore in her body is going to scream to get out of there. Get out of there. You know, you can't take it, you can't handle it because it's detoxing. And the Bible says that in Philippians 4.13 that I can do all things through Christ, who, what? Strengthens me. Have that power. And we expect that since we prayed for it before we went into the program that we're going to have it, right? No, that's not the way it works. It's in that moment when everything is screaming inside of you to walk out that door that the Holy Spirit says, can you just hold on one more minute? When you've taken all the steps you can and you're ready to collapse on the road, but somehow you manage to take one more step and then one more step like that. What's the contact point that makes that happen? Because it's not of you. It's your obedience. It's your obedience to what he has told you to do. Stay. Don't leave this program. Don't walk out that door. Stay. I can't handle it one more minute. Okay, well, can you handle it for 30 seconds? Yeah. Stay. And I will give you the strength. And when you choose to obey, he will give you the strength to do it. 
uh, Albert Barnes says, there was great power manifested in the gospel in its leading them to break off from their sins, to abandon their idols, and to give their hearts to God. Even though they're going to risk ostracization, they're going to risk violence, and they're going to face persecution and even death. Paul says, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Holy Spirit, it means it's a message by the Holy Spirit, a living person who works within the hearts of the hearers to convict, to comfort, and to instruct. You know, if, I, if I speak, then it's just a matter of my words, but when the Holy Spirit works through the word as I teach, then a great spiritual work is being accomplished. And I hope that's true. That would be wonderful to know. We sometimes think too little about spiritual operations of the word of God. You know? We're out of time here. We've got to stop. All right. Let's, let's go on and get to a couple of reflections real quick. Finally, Paul preached the gospel in much assurance. Do you know what that means? It means he believed every word he said. He was absolutely convinced of it. Have you ever talked to people who are absolutely convinced of everything they're saying and talking about? It's kind of hard to stop people like that, isn't it? All right, this is what I'd like to leave you with. Look around and see what God is doing, number one. Look around and see what God is doing. I do believe that we're in the last days, but it could be that we're just the end of a cycle of a civilization. And uh, we should give ourselves over to prayer and good works. That would be the natural thing to do. But while that's happening, take note of what God is doing now. Think about the revival that's going on in Saudi Arabia even. And John's church and Kimmy leading people to Christ. See what God is doing and it will blow your mind. Look around. Get on the Google and find out the good blessings that God is pouring out. Secondly, mature in your faith. Your works of faith, your service in areas of need and interest, the things that you are pleased to do, do it. Stay at it. In your labors, in your toil, in your sweat, keep at it. God will strengthen you out of love. And then develop your hope. Be patient because his coming, he is at the door. And finally, realize that you're chosen. You are a chosen individual, part of a chosen generation. My life verse is John 15, 16. God says, Jesus says, you did not choose me. I chose you. And I've appointed you that you should go forth and bear fruit. And not only that, that your fruit should remain. That you may ask the Father anything in my name, and he will give it to you. I didn't choose him. He chose me. That kind of makes him responsible to a degree, doesn't it, to what comes off of here. Now, a lot of us, me included, tend to um, second-guess ourselves. Am I the only one that does that? And you feel, you know, sometimes like a failure and a loser. But think of this. If you had all knowledge, 
and and you knew what was going to happen, would you choose losers? If you if you <laughs> I'm not advocating this. If you go down to the horse track and you already know who's going to win the race, are you going to lay down money on the one that comes in last place? Well, not if you're a sane person. Neither has God laid down his bet on you, knowing that you're coming in last place. He doesn't choose losers, okay? Have that confidence. When you go to God in prayer, have that confidence, okay? All right, is that enough for one night? Yes, it is. Let's all stand, and we will sing a song, and angel will pray for us.